We're going to continue this uh, conversation we've had about um, about buzzwords, the the words that that uh, don't mean as much to us as um, as they should, either because we're just not familiar with the, the real meaning of the term in its original field, or because it just kind of got all of its meaning squeezed out of it through overuse. And so last week we looked at faith, and if you weren't here, uh, the the quick answer is: What is faith? Faith is Trusting in God. That's, that's the particular meaning when Christians talk about faith. They don't mean irrational belief or, or pretending to believe things. It means trusting God. And that includes trusting God, um, to fill in the gaps in our, in our own understanding. So, so we talked about faith before. Today I want to talk about sin. And I think sin is even less well understood than faith. I think it's a, it's a buzzword because unlike faith, faith kind of makes, you know, if you believe in something or you're pretending to believe in something you don't really believe in, then that makes you look bad. But when you use the word sin, you are, you are making people around you feel bad because, because they don't know what the word means. One of the things that, that strikes me is I read the New Testament is how Paul or Peter or John the Baptist, the people who are talking about sin in the New Testament, are able to do so, and they're able to just assume sin. The audience says, "Okay, yeah, I got you. Uh, what do you What do you want to say about sin?" Or, you know, I understand sin, but tell me, you know, what What about your message makes makes my understanding of sin uh, transform into something that's good news? Why would I want to hear you talk to me about sin? They could, they could speak to people about sin, and people would say, okay, all right, I got you on the sin. Where are we going from there? But we can't do that today because people hear the word sin and they, and they say, you know, hold on a second. Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? You know, I'm not even sure what sin is and whatever it is, it sounds bad and I'm not like that. So, so I think today we, we can't assume that. And it's a puzzle to me how the Christian church could have influenced society for 2000 years and people understand sin less today than they did in the pagan culture of the first century. And somehow we've managed to achieve that. And so um, for you, some of you may know how we've managed to achieve that because you remember the way that the church acted when mom got divorced and the the people who said that she was a sinner. And so you're thinking, well, maybe that's that had something to do with it. Maybe maybe it's the way people people reacted when your family member came out as gay. Maybe it's the co-worker who uh, has, has a criminal record and the people who, who have said to him that he's a sinner. Or maybe it's somebody you know who's got a substance abuse problem. And they've heard the word sin, and they think they know what it means. And so if you talk about sin, then they say, you know what, I've had enough of sin. Thank you very much. Go peddle your stuff somewhere else. Because people don't understand what sin is. So what I want to do is I want to see if we can kind of unwind all that and start over from scratch and talk about sin in a different way. Talk about sin as if we had never heard it and as if Christians hadn't used it as a club to beat people up with for the past couple of millennia. So what I want to do is talk about sin in that light. So um, so what is sin? Um, Sin is um, is something. Sin was something we'll talk about in a minute. But first, I want to I want to begin with two two disclaimers. Whenever Christians talk about sin, we should begin with the same thing I mentioned to the children: that the people we're talking to are children of God. And theologians can argue about exactly how and why and when and and you know what you have to do for that to 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 occur. But what's clear in Scripture is that everybody you meet is a child of God if they will accept that. 
If they will accept the fact that God loves them as his dear children, then they are children of God. So we cannot be in a situation where we're saying, well, you're a sinner, because what we know is they are children of God. Uh, in the mid-1800s, there was a writer named George MacDonald, and he wrote a lot of fantasy books. And people ask him sometimes, why do you write so much about princesses and princes? And he said, because princes and princesses are the children of the king. He said that's the way he wanted people to read those books, is to understand that when we read about a prince or a princess, it's talking about everybody you know, because we are all children of the king. So every person you meet is a child of God, a child of the king. The other thing we have to make sure people understand before we can go any further in any discussion about sin is we have to remember that every Christian you meet is a sinner. So the first part of that says uh, is from the... the uh, Letter of John, see how much love our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But people who belong to this world don't recognize, they don't know yet that we are God's children because they don't know him. So uh, we are children of God, and as I said, every Christian is a sinner. The Apostle John, in the same letter, he says this. He says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And then it's like he says, you know what, fooling ourselves is too nice. I need to I need to harden that a little bit. He says, in fact, if we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. We're not simply fooling ourselves. We're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So Christians can never be talking about sin from a position of judgment because any judgment we're discussing uh, reflects on us because every one of us knows sin. Or maybe we don't know it, but we experience it. So with that... What is sin? So with that, with that proviso, with that, with that disclaimer, we can talk about sin. So what is sin? Sin is how God sees evil in humanity. Now some of you are familiar with probably the most common definition you'll hear in a church of what sin is. You'll hear sin is missing the mark. And that's true. The actual word used throughout the New Testament for sin is a, is a term from archery. And it means you're aiming at the bullseye and you don't hit it. You're, you know, three, three rings out or maybe you're not even on the target. That's, that's technically what the word actually means. It's to miss the mark. But, but it raises questions for us. You know, who set the target up? What does it mean to shoot an arrow? Who, dis- who defines what the, what the, uh, Bullseye is so. So it's kind of a, a hard conversation to to have because it raises as many questions as it answers. So instead of talking about missing the mark, what I want to talk about is uh, what sin actually is. And sin is how God sees evil in humanity. Now, what does that say? It says that God, that evil exists. This is not a stretch for most of us. That we can think of things, maybe in our own life, maybe things we see on TV. That that for us, we don't have to simply say, you know, evil is an illusion. It's not, you know, it doesn't really exist. If we could see it differently, we'd realize everything is wonderful. We can look at the world and we can say, no, there is evil in the world. Now, we could have a whole conversation about about where evil comes from, how it entered the world, and so forth. But the one thing we know from Scripture is that the world is not intrinsically evil. So we, we read in uh, the book of Genesis, God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. So the world is not intrinsically evil. That there are, are uh, belief systems that say, you know, matter is icky and only pure spirit is wonderful. That, that the world is intrinsically evil. And, and Christians don't believe that. Christians say the world was made to be good and somehow, and that's a whole separate conversation, somehow evil entered into it. And more than that, it entered into us. 
So we believe that there is evil, and it is in people. And the question is, is it in us? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know it's in you, but but is it in me? That's that's the question we all wrestle with. You know, the people around us that, that would explain a lot at breakfast. You know, but but what about me? Is evil in me? And the problem is we can't see it. The 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 definition says sin is how God sees evil. See, we don't have God's perspective. But more than that, we are trying to self-diagnose. How many how many times have you heard of somebody who who went to the ER? Uh, they, they were going to go to the emergency room. They're wondering, am I having a heart attack? And you know, they spend the night there, and then they find out, no, they just had spaghetti the night before, and so they had they had a bad case of indigestion. They didn't have a heart attack. But then sometimes you hear people. Um, I, I could point at one, but that would be rude. Uh, who who um, who were in denial about their heart attack, and they they uh, didn't they didn't um, they didn't realize they. <laughs> They, they didn't realize they were having a heart attack. Um, and so it took, it took an intervention from outside them to say, you know, we're going to get you to the hospital and straighten you out because we're terrible at diagnosing ourselves. And so, you know, it's, it's obvious that I, I can point at some people and say, well, I'm sure that God sees evil in them. But the big question is, if I presented myself at the ER, would God see evil in me? Because I know God sees evil in humanity. I know there is evil in the world, and I know there is evil in humanity. And so the question is, is there evil in me? Is there sin? And so that's the, that's the definition of sin we're going to work with. We see that the, the world was not, was not, I have no idea where we're at. I'm supposed to be looking at this thing. So, um, so we see that the, the world was not evil intrinsically, but that within a few chapters in the, in the account of Genesis, uh, the, the Lord sees what we all see. The Lord observed that the, the extent of human wickedness on the earth, he saw everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. So we, we understand that the world is evil. The question is, am I evil? Or to what degree am I evil? What, to what degree has evil infected me? So, how do I find out? Well, fortunately, there is a lab exam. When we go to the ER, they can run a test on us. God can tell us, God can give us a test that will help us to see whether or not we have sin. And that leads us to our next point, which is sin is exposed as the desire for self-mastery. So I can't see inside you. I can't really even see inside me with any clarity. But there is a test I can run. And the question is, am I, do, do I have a desire for self-mastery? Now, self-mastery, self-mastery doesn't sound bad, does it? You know, that sounds kind of good. You know, what's wrong with self-mastery? It sounds like independence and self-reliance. And, and what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with those, but Self-mastery is different. Self-mastery means that we do not want to be, we do not, we bristle when someone suggests that we are subject to any authority than ourselves. That self-mastery is, I am the captain of my fate and the master of my destiny. Uh, you are not the boss of me. Who are you to tell me what to do? That, that is the desire for self-mastery. And, and you may say, well, you know, that's just normal. That's kind of the, isn't that the way people are? Well, maybe it is. There's a story in the Bible about King David. Some of you are familiar with it, the story of David and Uriah, Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Um, David was a king in Israel about a thousand years B.C. And late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. 
He sent someone to find out who she was and was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. She's someone's daughter. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's someone's wife. But David was a king. David was the master of his fate and the captain of his destiny. David had a desire for self-mastery. So what did David do? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Because he could. Because he was the boss. He was in charge. He was the king, and nobody could tell him what to do. David sinned. And we say, well, that's wrong. That's You certainly don't want that. And we would say, and it's not just David. We can think of Hollywood producers or Wall Street financiers with their own private island. You know, this is not a, 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 an, an unusual thing we hear about in the Bible. That You know, I can't believe those people back then. So we understand that there are still people who see the world this way. We can say, we can say there is clearly some signs there that suggest that person has a desire for self-mastery, that they want to be in charge. They don't want to be um, subject to any kind of uh, external authority, that they want to be their own boss, and they want to do what they want and not anybody tell them what to do. But is it just sex? You know, If you listen to some people, they would think all Christians talk about is sex. Well, uh, it's not just about sex. There's another story in the Bible, the story of Ahab, and he was a, he was also a king, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. The problem was that Ahab um, admired this vineyard. There was a vineyard owned by a man named Naboth, and and he wanted it. And he went to Naboth and said, I'd like to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't do that. That farm has been in the, in the family for generations. I could never get rid of that farm. And Ahab says, no, I'll, I'll pay you whatever you want. And, and Naboth says, no, it's not for sale. And Ahab is upset because he wants to be in charge of his own fate. He wants to be the master of his own world. And he's the king, and it just upsets him that even the king can't get what he wants in Israel. So he goes home, and his wife says, have supper. He says, oh, I don't feel like eating. I'm upset because Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And Jezebel says, are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something. And don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she arranges for Naboth to be arrested on some trumped-up charges, and then he is convicted and executed. And now, no more, you know, you, what does it go? You show me a man um, who's a problem. No more man, no more problem. That was that was uh, Jezebel's perspective, because she lived in a world where the king was a law unto himself. So. We say, well, yeah, but those are kings. Those are kings and financiers and tycoons. That's not, that's not a problem I have to worry about. But it shows you what the problem is. Sin evaluates others as a means to our own end or an obstacle to the achievement of our end, as with Naboth and his refusal to sell the vineyard. So sin is revealed as that desire to see others as a means to our end. Paul talks about a case where he did something good. Um, he, he, there was a woman who had a, a unclean spirit, a demon, and um, Paul turned to her after some days and t- said to the demon within her. He, Paul was upset. He, the, the demon was kind of jerking this this girl around, making her uh, dance to its tune, walking around behind Paul and shouting things about how God, how Paul was a servant of God. And Paul got upset with it after a while, and he turned to the demon and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And instantly it left her. So she's healed and everybody's happy, right? Well, not the girl's owners. Because the girl's owners, they like to put her on display. She was a freak. People would pay to hear what the freak had to say. And Paul's cured her and no more freak. What do you do? Well, they took Paul and Silas to the authorities because their hopes of wealth was now shattered. And so they took them to the authorities and said, these guys are interfering with commerce. Now, uh, maybe your workplace isn't quite the same way, but, but have you ever seen a workplace treated as a place where people are tools to be exploited? They're not seen as people, but they're seen as cogs. They're seen as, as things that you use to get your way or not. Maybe you can say, you know what, I've got a coworker that I kind of typically see in those black and white terms. They're either helping me or they're causing me trouble. Now, the good news is we're not all like that or not all the time. On the other hand, how far out do we have to go? You know, the stories in the Bible are at the far end of a, of a continuum. And they invite us to ask, you know, okay, well, obviously I'm not like David, but, but am I a little bit like David? Am I a little bit like Ahab? Am I a little bit like the owners of that slave girl? I was having a conversation with two pastors, and, you know, butter wouldn't melt in our mouth. We're so holy. <laughs> and and uh, the, one of them was telling me about uh, an incident with his children, and it's it's an incident. Maybe some, maybe even non-pastors have experienced this, where a, a child is misbehaving, and and the parent needs to discipline the child, but it's in a public setting, and you suddenly are asking the question, "How can I do this in such a way that it reflects well on me?" That it's not just about what does the child need to be socialized and to become a, a, an adult with the, with the right values and, and instincts, but what can I do to make myself look good here? And so maybe I don't discipline the child who needs it, or maybe I do discipline the child when they don't need it, or I discipline it in a way that the child doesn't need. Because I'm more concerned about me than about the child at that moment. And so am I using that child as a means to an end? Well... Yes, I have. And so had the other pastor. So, so, um, so I think we can all confess that we have at least from time to time used others as a means to our ends. But this also answers another question. If you listen to a Christian's debate with non-Christians, one of the questions that comes up is, so you believe that if I'm not a Christian, I can't lead a virtuous life? No, of course we don't believe that. Christians believe that non-Christians can certainly lead virtuous lives. Uh, you know them. You may live with them. Because of course Christians non-Christians can lead lives of virtue. All they've got to do is to not treat people as means to an end. That, that that's the, the essence of virtue. Jesus tells us a story, one of his most famous stories. He talks about um, a priest and a, and a Levite uh, came across this man who had been robbed and left for dead. And they walked to the other side of the road to avoid him. But then a despised Samaritan came along. So who's a Samaritan? Samaritan is not a Jew. He's not a member of the religious community. He's an outsider. He's a non-believer. He came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. So going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then Jesus asked the question, Now which of these, which of these three men would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The two religious people or the non-religious person? Who was the neighbor? 
And the answer is obvious. The Samaritan. And that, that brings up another point. You know, Christians should make sure that they have their house in order before they accuse non-Christians of not being virtuous. So um, Jesus tells us that explicitly. He says, hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So if we're going to have that conversation, there's a, there's, a, there's a legitimate question, which is, where did your system of ethics come from? I see you're a virtuous person. I see you are governed by compassion. That, 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 that you don't owe that that guy who's dying on the side of the road, you don't owe him anything, but you chose to be governed by something outside yourself instead of simply walking by. I see that you did that, and I would ask you the question, where did that system of ethics come from? That's a, that's a legitimate question. But simply to say, because you're not a Christian, you have no ethical framework. You have no system that, that you, you use to tell you when you need to do things, that you are ungoverned, that you are running wild. That's an insult. And Jesus tells us, don't be hypocrites. So, can Christians uh, lead lives of virtues? Yes, but so can non-Christians. So, what the Samaritan did was he exhibited what God wants all humans to do. Because what Christianity teaches is that true humanity is loving God and neighbor. True humanity is loving God and neighbor. This is the essence of what God made us to be. That when we see people as tools to exploit or obstacles to be overcome, we're not loving them. We are at the very opposite end of love. So we read this in the scriptures. God created human beings in his own image. God created us to love the way he loves. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That's what we were made to be. That's what true humanity really is. And we don't see it. I mean, I know a lot of you are better than me, but but we don't see it perfectly in anyone. But we do see it in Jesus because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That when we look at Jesus, we see what we were made to be. We see what it truly means to be a human. And Jesus tells us, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This is what it means to be a human. But is that what we actually experience? Well, in the book of Genesis, the, story, the way the story is told there, that after the, the man and the woman have sinned, after they've disobeyed God's commandment, their eyes are opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. They realize they're exposed. They're suspicious. What are they going to think of me? They're kind of like me disciplining my child. That person, they're going to judge me. They're going to look at me. I better cover my nakedness. And so they do. And then immediately afterwards... God is walking in the garden. They hear God walking through the garden. And what do they do? They hide from God among the trees because they are alienated. They have become hostile. That that They realize, I have lost my true humanity. So sin causes us, to whatever degree sin infects us, we lose our true humanity. And so they become alienated. Paul says this, he says, The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And Jesus tells us more pointedly about our neighbors. He says that the, the, at the great judgment, the king will call everyone before him, and he'll point to some people and he'll say, when I was naked or hungry or thirsty or in prison, you didn't come help me. And they'll say, we would have come and helped you. When did we ever see you in prison or hungry or naked? And not help you. And he will answer, 
I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. When you put your own needs, your own desires, when you let yourself give in to the desire for self-mastery, when you are alienated from other people, when you're hostile to them and indifferent, you're hostile and indifferent to me. So, that's the diagnosis. Next week we're going to talk about the remedy. But that is the diagnosis. And it may be kind of tough medicine or a tough diagnosis. The medicine's next week, and it's not as tough. But I hope it doesn't come across as judgment. I hope you can you can hear this and say, all right, I recognize, yes, I'm not who I would like to be. I do miss the mark. And yes, I understand now why people might have said those things that were cruel. Because I understand now better what Christians were trying to say when they talked about sin. So next week we're going to talk about um, the remedy. But today I want to talk, I want to wrap up by talking about first aid. How do you, how do you deal with the problem while you're waiting for surgery? What do you do in the meantime? Well, the answer is don't be that way. So this is simple, right? Just do it. So, so love God, love neighbor. If you're not, if you're not a God person, you're not sure what you believe about God, okay, skip God. Jesus, in fact, tells us, if you have a problem with your neighbor, then leave your gift at the altar. Don't worry about that. Come back after you've sorted things out with your neighbor. So by all means, skip God. Just get right with your neighbor. Love your neighbor. So, so think about, think about your neighbor. Think, think about someone, someone real with an actual face, someone with a heartbeat, not, not humanity in general. But how can you love them? You know, I, I've, I've got one tip that I would give you, right? It's this. Think of something you admire about them. Think about that. It may, may, for some people, it may take a lot of thinking. In other cases, it's, it's obvious what's admirable about them. And then tell them. Look them in the eye and say, you know what I admire about you is this. Paul says, Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, some of you will try to do this with other people, and you won't do it with the person sitting next to you. And the reason is because it doesn't count somehow if the pastor told you to do it. Trust me. It will count. Just try it. Look at the, and we don't have to do it right now, but do it today. Look at the person and say, you know what I admire about you? Here's what I admire about you. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let them see you don't see them as an obstacle to be overcome or a tool to be exploited. Let them know that you love them. This is the first step out of the problem. So. Sin is exposed. We will never see it clearly from God's point of view. We know it's in the world, but we will never see it clearly because we don't have God's point of view, and we're terrible at self-diagnosis. But that question, am I trying to be my own boss? Am I trying to be a law unto myself? That will tell us a lot. And then ask yourself, how do I relate to other people? If you see them as tools, if you see them as things to exploit, if ultimately you are indifferent and hostile and alienated, then that is sin. And the solution, don't sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the solution may be hard, but the diagnosis is not hard. Because we know, we know, Lord, the times we have, we have seen others as tools or obstacles. So, Lord, help us to see them the way you see them, as loved, as beloved children, as, as princes and princesses. Help us to see the people around us and to relate to them 
the way you do. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.